Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the When to Jump podcast. My name is Mike Lewis. This week, we've got a very interesting guest on the show, Jason Pfeiffer, editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine and a serial jumper himself. Jason is not only an editor-in-chief, but he's also an author, and he recently came out with a book that he will share with us a bit about, very funny as Jason is as well. Uh, But what isn't funny and what is actually serious is the amount of steps it took to get to the point where Jason's at in his career. And I think I applaud Jason for what you'll hear as very candid honesty around that journey that started in some very unsexy places and unsexy positions uh, in terms of professional uh, roles and jobs and what he had to do to get to where he is. None of this, as we know on the show, is something you're uh, typically just born into doing. And certainly for Jason Pfeiffer, you know, being a published author and editor-in-chief of a major magazine was not something he was handed uh, really at any point, especially right out of school as he, as he started on his career. So what you'll hear is, is a lot on the grit and the, uh, the resilience that it takes, but also the humor that, that comes with taking a jump. So enjoy my conversation right here on the When to Jump podcast with Jason Pfeiffer. Jason Pfeiffer, welcome to the When to Jump podcast, coming live from Midtown, where there might be some sirens coming our way soon. Am I right? Yeah, there's almost always a siren uh, about, I would say, every half an hour because I'm facing out onto 7th Ave. So uh, a perk of the job. <laughs> exactly. We, we at the When to Jump show want to bring you the jumpers right where we find them each day. <laughs> <laughs> live and in action. Live and in action in a really cool conference room, I'm sure, in Midtown. Uh, yeah, no, my actual office. Uh, luckily, I am I am very very fortunate to have a door and a couch and uh, and a and a very large desk that is just full of crap. Uh, this is my space. That is uh, really funny. This is a total aside, but um, I, when I left my my desk job to go play professional squash, I ended up t- you know taking three months and then nearly around two years. And we've chatted chat about that experience itself on the show. That's a different different interview, a different narrative. But when I came back, my first like corporate interview to try to like figure out if I was going to like go back to that world or whatnot. It was, it was not in a kind of creative lens and, and, and around the fun stuff that you get to do in your day job. It was at a different place in Midtown, but it was like a Midtown sky rise. And my, my shoe that I had worn around the world, it was kind of like a dress shoe, but it was my only pair that I had. It started to disintegrate. The sole disintegrated onto the carpet of this like white shoe finance oh, no. firm. So like, I've never been back there, but maybe next time I'll come sit on your couch and we can hang out. Oh uh, yeah, come come by. You can you can disintegrate anything onto my couch. It's this old couch that I just inherited. It's like so dumpy, but uh, you know what? I, I I really don't like working out of an office, but having a personal space makes it infinitely more tolerable. Totally. Totally. All right. So I want to get into your, your jumps. You've done, I say jumps as in, as in plural. And so I think the audience is going to really enjoy this. You know, starting off, you know, the bad, you were the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. Was that what 10-year-old Jason Pfeiffer thought he would be doing at some point in his life? 
No, certainly, certainly not. I had, well, I mean, literally, I mean, at 10, of course, I had no idea what the hell I was doing, but I I need to stress, like, it's not what, I'm 38 now, it's not what 34-year-old Jason Pfeiffer would have said (laughs) he was, right? It's, it's, I think that the, the beauty of my career path, and I think most people's career paths, is that you just have absolutely no idea what the great opportunities are going to be until you're faced with them. And uh, the the advice that I always give to people is to not narrow down their perceived path, to not say that you must go accomplish this one thing at this one place, because all you're going to do is turn down all these amazing opportunities along the way that could have taken you to far better places than whatever it is that you were trying to get to, which you may or not may or may not have actually done. So no, I originally, as far back as I can think of myself as having a career goal, I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know what kind of writer. And I experimented with a whole bunch of different things in high school and college. And then after college, I got uh, the only job that I could find, which was a tiny, tiny community newspaper job, 6,000 circulation daily newspaper in Gardner, Massachusetts, writing about nothing for nobody because there was nothing happening there. And, uh, and, and then, you know, basically sitting there and thinking, okay, I think that I'm at step one of a path that I might be eventually satisfied with, but I am definitely not satisfied with step one. Yeah. And, and was there pushback when you decided to go to, to Gardner Mass? Is that for, for that, for that, for that first job out of school? I imagine that must have not, you know, how did that conversation go down with those around you? Oh, with those around me? I mean, you know, everybody, no, there was no pushback. I, you know, I mean, I, so I, I went to school in Worcester, Massachusetts. So Gardner wasn't all that far away. And all my friends knew that I wanted to get into journalism at that time. And, and to be honest with you, journalism was something of a default position. I, I knew I loved to write. I tried fiction. I wasn't very good at it. I tried screenwriting. I wasn't very good at it. I tried journalism. Like I interned at a couple of local papers and I thought that I was pretty good at it. Uh, you know, I, I knew how to interview people and find stories. And I thought that this was a path that I could, I could take and refine. And at the time my ambition was to become a like big shot newspaper reporter, right? Like maybe I would go cover the white house for the New York times or something. And so taking this job felt like a pretty decent first step. And, uh, I, I mean, I think that people were, people were excited for me. Like, you know, you're excited for anybody who goes along and tries to take their, take their path. Um, but it was, it was very quickly, not what I wanted it to be. You know, it was so, it was so ego shattering, um, to feel like I had the skills. I mean, I don't think I did at that time, but you know, at the time I thought I had the skills and I had the motivation and the savvy to work at a far higher level. And yet here I was working at really the very bottom. And, and I got to say that, you know, the, the problem that I had for myself that I created for myself was that I really projected that while I was at that first job. I mean, I made it pretty clear to people that I thought I was better than this job. And you know, like the joke was on me because if I was better than that job, I wouldn't have been at that job, but I was. And, uh, and, and so it really reached a breaking point after about a year where I felt like I just had to, I had to leave. I had this insight that I wanted to work at really large publications 
and the people that I wanted to work for were never in a million years going to find my work at the Gardner News. They were never, ever, ever going to pick up the Gardner News and be like, oh, the kid who wrote this feature about the local diner, like we need to hire him to cover the White House. Like that was never, ever going to happen. And so I just realized I cannot wait for someone to come to me. I have to go to them. Right. Absolutely. And so what happens next? So what happens next is that I sit in a I sit in a dumpy apartment in Holden, Massachusetts, which is next to a graveyard where I'm paying $500 a month in rent and stare out the window, uh, upon the, the graves of my career. I, I like, I just, you know, I, what I was doing was I was cold pitching, right? I was trying to freelance my way into something larger. And so I was sitting in my bedroom and I was coming up with story ideas and I was emailing them out into the into the, the cold darkness because I was not connected. I didn't know anybody. And after about nine months of this, I got a hit. I, I, I got a few hits after nine, you know, so I, I got a piece in the Washington Post. I got a piece in the Boston Globe, the Associated Press, a couple of pieces in the salon. And so it was starting to feel better. And I realized, uh, well, that one, this was, this was a good idea. Like I was, I was indeed going to them and I was making those connections, but it was also going to be a far slower road than I had anticipated. And also there was still plenty for me to learn. So also, and I was lonely as hell. (laughs) So I took another job, uh, a somewhat larger newspaper called the Worcester Telegram and Gazette, but I kept freelancing because now mm. I realized, okay, I, let me, I'm going to do both. I'm going to work this job and that'll be my pay and it'll get me out of the house, but I'm also going to continue to freelance and I'm going to bust my ass freelancing because freelancing is what gets me in front of the people who are working at the level that I want to work at. And so the real jump as I see it was to come fairly soon. And here's what it looked like. After about a year I was, or rather, a, I started working at that job that was Telegram was a Gazette job. I did that for maybe two something years, but for the last year of it, I had gotten a pretty steady freelancing gig at Boston Magazine. I had applied for a job there. I got turned down, but uh, they put me in touch with the guy who got my job, and I just started pitching him stories, and he needed a writer, and I was reliable and always ready to hustle, and so I became his regular writer. I was on a monthly basis contributing to Boston Magazine. And after a year of that, I noticed something. And what I noticed was that on the masthead, which is the list of staff people inside a magazine, I noticed that a senior editor had left and that the junior editor that I was working with was probably going to get moved up. And that meant that the job that I had applied for before was going to open back up again. And now I had the experience, I knew people at Boston, and I was just damn sure that I was going to get that job. So you know what I did? And here's the jump. I quit my newspaper job in central Massachusetts, and I moved to Boston, and I told where I had got a very expensive apartment, and I told the editor-in-chief of Boston Magazine that I was ready for him to hire me. Mm. And if he did not hire me, I have no idea what would have happened. Uh, but he did. He, he, well, first he threw a couple more freelance pieces at me, like kind of larger things and different stuff. And we had a lot of conversations because I was basically just a newspaper reporter and I was trying to be a magazine editor. And he wasn't entirely sure I was up for it, but he took a chance on me. And I think he took a chance on me because I showed that I was committed and I hustled. And at this point, everybody in that magazine trusted me and, uh, and I got hired and, 
be, a, a year and a half later, men, Men's Health hired me. And so I moved to New York and then I worked at and then I went to, I, I kept freelancing. I just kept freelancing everywhere. And so from there, I went to Fast Company and Maxim and then Entrepreneur. And along the way, I freelanced for the, I, I like every publication that I love, New York, Slate, GQ, um, more at the Times, Popular Mechanics, everywhere. And I really attribute all of it to really those two decisions to quit, the, to quit the first newspaper job and then to quit the second newspaper job. Because in both cases, what I was doing was I was, I, I had made a calculated risk. I was setting myself up for, I, I had, I had taken some steps to set myself up for success. And then I had functionally burned the ships, which I, I don't know if that's a metaphor that you use on this show, but, um, but it's a good one that comes up in entrepreneurship all the time. Um, to, to, which I, which is that I burned my ships. Do, do you know, do you know the burn the ships thing? So not only do I, I know it and appreciate it, but the last guest we had on spoke of that. And I don't know oh, the, yeah. the recording schedule, but that it's so funny. We, we went on a tangent for a long time about that. And do you know, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm sure you can explain the, for those who don't know the, the, the story behind burn the ships. Yeah. You know, I always forget. So if, if this is fresher in your memory, you can jump in. I always forget the actual historical reference, but it was, um, so it, it, it's a, it's a tale of these, um, these kind of uh, conqueror, these conquistadors or whatever, who land on a uh, land in a, in a in a foreign land, and they are there to basically take over the land. And so everybody, all the soldiers, get off the ships, and then they turn to the captain and they say, "Now what?" And he says, "Burn the ships." And they burn the ships, and they said, burn the ships, because if we burn the ships, then we have no option but to win. Like there is no retreating when you don't have your ships anymore. And that, that's a that's something that has comes up a lot in entrepreneurship because people have to put themselves in these situations where it's so scary to put yourself into a new situation where you don't know if you're equipped to, to succeed and you don't really know what's coming. All you know is that you've put yourself onto a unknown path and you can psych yourself out, right? You can say, you know what? I think maybe I'm going to take the easier road, which was behind me instead of moving forward. And so if you are truly, truly committed to the path, then you do some kind of burn the ships moment where you essentially remove the possibility for yourself of wimping out and, uh, and you have to go forward. Uh, I, I, you know, I, there are lots of different ways to do that. And for me, um, quitting my newspaper job and moving to Boston was an absolute burn the ships moment. There was, there was, it wasn't a question of whether or not I would get this job. If I didn't get this job, I wouldn't have a job. And frankly, I probably wouldn't be able to afford my rent either. Now, is that a sane move and a move that I would suggest everyone do? No, I, it was kind of crazy and it could have absolutely gone the other way. And then I don't know what story I'd be telling you right now from whatever street corner I was sitting on, but, <laughs> uh, but like it did work out, you know, it did work out. And, and I think it was because I didn't just make a crazy decision. I spent literal years preparing for it because the greatest risk that anybody takes is a risk that seems crazier to everyone else than to the person who's taking the risk because the person who's taking the risk knows that they have prepared for it. Man, I wish we met before I had to write, well, not had to write, but before, before my final manuscript of my book was done because you basically just summarized it in like five minutes, what, what it would take like several hours to, and, and many, <laughs> many months for me to write. But I, that's, that's totally it. I mean, the thesis to me about taking a jump is you make a decision that's crazy but not stupid. And you walking into that 
office with no day job to to back you up, that might seem crazy, yes, but was it stupid? Well, no, because what that implies is like you're not leaving without that job. You've got the qualifications. You've done that back work. Like you said, several years. I mean, from my thousand plus conversations that I've, I've been lucky to have in the last few years, I don't know anyone who spent less than a year or more at least on, on getting that, you know, the ship's ready to burn and, and taking that jump. And I think that's what people miss in a lot of these stories, particularly in entrepreneurship, where people think that, you know, and even in your story, maybe just in the editorial side, staying with that example, they could see you at Men's Health or at Boston Magazine or at, you know, Fast Company or at Entrepreneur and be like, oh, you, you kind of graduated and that's what you did. And it's like, well, you just explained like... Uh, 9,000 unsexy steps that go into this that that could have easily stopped you and would stop most people, you know, living next to a graveyard in, you know, small town Massachusetts. No one really sees that when you're working as the big guy and you have a couch in your office in Midtown, but they should know that, right? A dumpy couch. Yes, that's right. That's right. Regardless of the quality of the couch, they should know that. Yeah, it's it's really true. And it's so important to keep in mind that everybody that you see in a position of success had a million failures along the way and a million and they, and they had to take a lot of chances and some of them sure, certainly didn't work out, right? Not every chance that I took worked out. It just happened to be that those two worked out. And and they, you know, and, and also keep in mind that they only they worked out because I have a, a story to tell now, right? Like I didn't know if they were gonna to work out at the time. And frankly, I didn't know if they were going to work out even when they worked out, right? Because I mean, think about it. Like I'm, I am able to tell that story about the first time that I quit the job and then spent nine months in my bedroom and then got that second newspaper job. Like at the time that felt like a failure. That didn't feel like it's, that wasn't part of a success story. That was part of a failure story because I had, I had quit and my goal was to like write for these big publications and then get a job at those big publications. And instead, I got some freelance work out of those publications, which was cool and really useful, but I didn't get hired by them. And instead, what I got was like a slightly bigger newspaper job that I didn't really like. Womp womp. Like that, that's not a success. But it's only later that I can look back and say, okay, but because I did that, I learned so much and I put myself into a position to succeed later. And that is just as valuable as the success. Like I, I, uh, there's a reason why uh, I, I'm the editor in chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. But I tell this story over and over again about my very early career days because they were so. That was such an important decision that I made, and I had no idea how it would work out. And it took a very, very long time to, 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 to come to fruition in a, in a way that I, I wanted it to. And, you know, to, to, which, which also goes to the, the, the first question you asked me, like it, it came to fruition in a way that I couldn't have anticipated. I didn't know. I, well, first of all, at the time, I definitely didn't know I wanted to be editor in chief of a magazine, but if I, if I had entrepreneur magazine would not have been on that list. Like it wasn't on my radar. I wasn't a business reader or writer. And, and I don't know that I had picked up entrepreneur magazine really until it was time to talk to this place about getting a job here. Like it just wasn't on my radar, right. but it, but it turned out to be an amazing transformational op opportunity. Like I, I am a different person and I am set up for success in so many different ways because of this gig. And this gig wasn't anywhere near something that I was thinking about before. You, you it, it's all about just set, creating the potential for opportunities for yourself. Like the more just, the more you can learn and the more you can do and the more you can 
you can be aware of simply the more doors open up to you and you don't know what's going to be behind them but i guarantee that they're better than whatever the hell you thought you wanted oh that is exactly right or and you might not have even known that there were doors you just take that next step and you know michael lewis uh, I, the the famous other guy that's also named michael lewis as i refer to him but he in in my book kind of anchors this chapter that okay once you've planned it's exactly what you said you you take this this jump where you've put in place things that will allow you to get lucky and 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 to put you know you put in place a, a set of situations where you find your luck you find that 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 kind of door that opens in the right spot but it's really important not to be judging it hour by hour day by day or else you could look at you know any number of the steps you were describing that didn't make sense or the nine months of being in your bedroom writing, being like, man, this didn't work. And I, I felt that acutely when I came back from playing squash. I wanted to get when to jump off the ground. And I told everyone I was an entrepreneur because in San Francisco, that sounds better than saying you're unemployed, right? But the truth was, <laughs> truth was, that's actually really, it's really hard. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get you get a couple breaks and, and it all makes sense in retrospect, right? But it doesn't in real time. And, and maybe it's just when you jump, you, you got to not always try to think, is this, is this worth it now? Is it worth it now? You, you just go and you keep, you know, creating doors to try to open, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. You just keep, right. You, so I have this philosophy on work and life, I guess, whatever, it's called work your next job. And work your next job to me means that Whatever you're doing, wherever you are, you always have two sets of opportunities in front of you. Opportunity set number one is the stuff that's being asked of you. So you get a job and those that job comes with responsibilities and you got to like do those responsibilities. Fine. The second set of opportunities is the stuff that nobody's asking you to do. But that may be available to you anyway. So uh, an example for me was when I worked at Fast Company, my job was to do various things for the print magazine. And yet, while I was there, a video team was assembled and they were looking for talent to put on video. And I didn't have a hell of a lot of experience, but I did have the confidence to at least stand in front of the camera and learn. And because of that, I got really good on video. And also, I just became a better speaker, like, you know, a better in ways that I wouldn't really know how it would manifest later, but that I just started sure. articulating in this particular voice and with this energy. I was learning all that because I was putting myself into the video position. And how has that paid off? Well, here's one way. Many, many years later, when I was interviewing to be editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, one of the things that they really liked about me was that I was good on video because an editor-in-chief has to go out and represent the brand, which means going on TV or making videos and standing on stage and all that stuff. And they could see that I was good at that. So because I, at Fast Company, got involved in the video department, which absolutely nobody was asking me to do, I created an opportunity for me years and years later, right? Like I was developing a skill set without knowing what the ROI was on it. I was working my next job without knowing what the next job was. And that I think is what people should be doing all the time. You should always, always, always be working your next job, even if you do not know what it is, because if you do not do that, then the only thing that you remain qualified for is the thing you are already doing. Oh, that is unbelievable advice. Thank you. <laughs> but, and you know what, the reason that's unbelievable, not just making you feel good, but the reason that's unbelievable is there are so many reasons to not do that. Yes. There's so many reasons to not do that. And they all suck. 
<laughs> they also all those reasons suck. I mean, like, what are the good reasons for not doing that? That you're I, like, I can I can only think of them in terms that are negative because you're lazy, because you're scared, because you're disinterested, because you're not a curious person. Like, uh, you know, the or here's the here's the here's the charitable one because you're not thinking about it. Right. So that's what I hope me talking about working your next job will get people to do, which is to get them thinking about it. I think people just overlook it. They don't see that they have other opportunities available to them. And listen, you might be in a job where there isn't something as obvious as the video department suddenly being created and looking for talent, right? Like that was that was a pretty obvious opening. All I had to do was take it. Sometimes you have to create these opportunities in different ways. You could, you could either put yourself into different positions at work or seek out new responsibilities or whatever, or do something outside of work. I mean, uh, the reason I, I got into podcasting, not knowing if it would be any use to me, but I just launched a podcast because I didn't know how to podcast and I wanted to learn. So what better way than to just try to figure it out on my own? And that is also working my next job. How? I mean, well, right now I make a podcast that makes money for entrepreneurs. So that's good. But maybe, be if you and I were to talk in five or 10 years, it's possible, I suppose, that my entire living would be made off of podcasts. I, maybe I'll start a podcast now. I don't know what the hell I'm going to do, but I know that that's a skill set that's useful and that nobody was asking me to do it, but I did it anyway. Yeah. And I think it's just going beyond what's comfortable, right? Is if we look at our days, it's like, what percent of my day is, is doing something uncomfortable? And I think we are at our worst when we say, well, none of it is uncomfortable and maybe not at our worst now, but setting ourselves up for where we want to be. Surely there is no, you know, there's no path being laid if we're just letting, you know, it's the difference between, and this is to me what like a jump is, 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 Maybe it's a mindset or mentality, but it's the difference between you taking on life uh, and learning the next skill or, or getting ready for the next job versus life just kind of happening to you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I, I mean, I always, Seth, another thing I always tell entrepreneurs, I, you, you know, you said about comfort. You know, I said the only people always ask me, what is the, what are the qualities of successful entrepreneurs, right? Like I talk to tons and tons of successful people every day. I meet the leaders of amazing companies. What are the, what is the consistent quality among them? And the answer, I mean, there are a lot of answers, but I think that the, the top answer is that they all in some way or another got comfortable being uncomfortable. Like they put themselves into uncomfortable situations so many times that it became comfortable to do that. It just became course, just, just matter of course to be, to be in uncomfortable situations. And, um, and that means making uncomfortable decisions. That means learning things in a way that's uncomfortable. Like it, it is, it shouldn't be easy. If it's easy, then you're not really pushing. I, I think it's funny you say that because when I, I, again, and I don't mean to bring this back to my squash experience because in, in on some ways it doesn't really connect, but in some ways it really does. Someone asked me, what is the most, well, actually, I'll tell you the story. It was a guy who I went to college with, I met up with in, in Australia. He was training, um, he was he had just finished training to become a, Marine, a lieutenant in the Marines. And I asked him, you know, what have you learned from the Marines? And he said that the Marines train you to be, basically to be calm and remain calm in the face of chaos. And, and, and basically, you know, when things are going left, right, and center and upside down and, and worse, you remain calm and, and everything they do to train the Marines is around that kind of being comfortable with, with, with everything going wrong. And he then asked, 
me, you know, what have you learned? And, and I gave a different answer to the same kind of question, which was, uh, you know, I was, I was spending four or five days a week uh, in one place where I knew a few people at, at the start. And by the end, I felt like it was, it was where I wanted to be. And every single time I packed up my bags, I, I, I looked first at flights to try to extend my flight or to cancel it or extend my stay or cancel the departing. Cause I was like, I don't want to leave this. I'm comfortable. And the one thing I'm grateful for from that experience beyond all the other things that fade into memory is that I got really good at being like, you know, on week 35 or 57 or 66, I knew that feeling sucked. And yet I was going to restart the process. Cause I knew I'd also get to a point where it would be okay again. And like, in those two little vignettes, I hold really tight, my friend in the Marines, and in a very different way, me finding that uncomfortableness that like you can create without having to necessarily start a company, but you can also do it in your own way, on your own time. And that that trait, I I think that's awesome to hear. That's what you you hear as well. That's so important. Yeah, that's that's absolutely that's a great anecdote. Yeah, it's true. I love, I really do love identifying things that I'm uncomfortable with because it means that there's an opportunity to get comfortable with them to do that. Like I, I like I live for the second time, right? The first time is always going to be uncomfortable, but the second time you've gotten past the first, and then you can really go for it. Uh, I mean, like I, I, you know, I can think of. I do a lot of keynote speaking now. And the very first time that I walked out on stage, I remember standing at the side of the stage and I was about to go out and I was emceeing an entrepreneur event. It was the very first time anybody had ever asked me to do something like this. Marcus Limonis was going to be the main speaker, that guy from The Prophet. And there were maybe like 300 people out in the crowd. This was in Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, or Scottsdale, I guess. And um, and I remember standing on the side of the stage and there's this video showing uh, about entrepreneur. And then, and then there's, you know, there's going to be this recorded this recorded voice being like, please welcome to the stage, Jason. Fire. And, and like, which we've since gotten rid of that recording. Cause it's so corny, but, uh, and, and standing there and like my heart is racing and I'm thinking to myself, I cannot wait to do this next time. Like I cannot wait to get through this experience in there and then know what I'm in for. You know, to like, because I don't know how I'm going to be when I walk on stage and I start talking. I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. I don't know. But once I once I see it once, I know how to improve upon it. I know what I'm working with. And and that is you just need to have that willingness to get through that first time to know that it's not going to be that great, but that is okay because the first, you have to get through the first time to get to the second time to get to the 10th time. You just have to do it. So just do it. Like just do it. Everyone did it at some point and everyone had a first time and you've got to have a first time too. And, and the more you do it, the more you will take something that is uncomfortable and you will make it comfortable. And then you will learn the process of taking something uncomfortable and making it comfortable. And then you can do it over and over and over again. Well, there you have it. And, and from that, how, what would you tell someone that's like, all right, well, where do I start, you know, finding something that I can fail at? Like when I'm still working my job to pay the bills and raise a family, like how do you implement that, that piece of guidance in like the real world with real responsibilities and stuff that you might not be able to go try to fail at right away off the bat? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, so first of all, I think that you just need to identify something. Like, one of the things that I, one of the the mistakes that I see people make over and over again when they're in a situation like that is that they have a 
bazillion ideas and they get stuck at the point in which they're trying to figure out which idea to go with. Uh, and so, uh, so they, so some of these people will reach out to me on Instagram and they'll be like, which do you think is a better idea opening a <laughs> restaurant or starting a spa or like starting a clothing company? And it's like, I don't know, like, you know, I don't know which, which one do you think you could do? Like, which one do you possibly have the, the, um, the, the skills or the knowledge or the network or the passion or something? Like pick one, pick one. And, uh, and so I think that number one, you got to pick one and you can pick that one based off of whatever you have in your life or in yourself that you think will give this one over the other ones, the greatest chance of success. Just like, what is it? And are you able to start with it small, right? Because, um, if the if it's between like opening a, a nuclear reactor or starting a clothing company, I'd go with the clothing company, right? Like it's just more manageable. So, uh, so, so they pick something, just like just pick yep. something, and then start building it piece by piece. So it like, let's say if you want to start a clothing company, then I think that the first thing that you need to do is go talk to a bunch of people who started clothing companies, see what it's like, what did they do? which is what are the first steps and then make something like make something and just try to sell it in a small way, create a little website and, and th- find someone who can help you with internet, uh, with digital marketing and, and just get out there and test it in the marketplace. You know, it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't even have to be good. Reed Hoffman, the co-founder of LinkedIn has this great phrase, which is that if you aren't embarrassed by your first product launch, then you launched too late. Just to say that everybody should start with something that's not that great because at least it means that you're starting and then you can refine it once it's kind of out there in the world and you're getting feedback from it. You're putting it into like the sandblaster of life and you can, you can grow and learn along the way. Um, you need to, you just need to get to that point. You need to, you need to start, you need to learn, you need to fail, and then you need to keep going. Yes. Oh, I love that. And I want to transition on this subject of doing things, you know, you haven't done before, uh, taking that step to, to things that might be important later that might not be part of your day job to your latest jump, uh, obviously not in leaving entrepreneur, but in addition to your day job, you are a published author. Yeah. And yeah. you are a published author alongside your wife. I am. <laughs> yeah, it was a crazy project that we did. So my, I'll tell you the, I'll tell you the, the, the abbreviated version of the story. So what we're talking about here is ultimately a novel called Mr. Nice Guy that came out pretty recently. And Mr. Nice Guy, which my wife and I co-wrote, started as an idea that I had in my, in my twenties. Like I told you, I'm 38. So this was um, probably early to mid twenties back in those community newspaper days when I was just doing some freelancing and a, a then famous, a then internet famous sex columnist reached out to me because she had just seen my name in a couple of publications and she was looking for freelance writing advice. And for some reason it picked me and emailed me and I knew who she was. And so it was kind of fun to, to email back and forth with her. Um, it was totally professional, not sexy emails, totally professional emails, but in emailing with her, the sex columnist, an idea popped into my head. And the idea was this, what would happen if each week two people slept together and then critically reviewed each other's performance in a magazine, (laughs) (laughs) just, you know, like what would happen? A funny thought experiment. Um, and I figured, you know, maybe there's a, 
something there? Like, there's a is there a novel there? Is I just didn't really know. I would tell friends, and they'd be like, "That's really funny. You should do something with that." And so I tried to write this as a novel a number of times, and I just couldn't. I, I'm not an I'm not a fiction writer. I'm just not. And I gave up on it a number of times. And I when when I started dating Jen, my my now wife, when I started dating her, which was 2008, nine, 2009, I uh, I told her about this idea, and she was like, "That's really funny. You should try to write that." And again, I tried, and I failed. And um, this is a re- this turned out to be a case, and this is something that I think everyone will experience multiple times in their lives. It, was, it turned out to be a case of right idea, wrong time. Right. I think that sometimes we we try something, we have like an idea, we try something, it doesn't work, and we're like, well, either the idea was bad or I am bad, but either way, this is never going to happen, Like, right. and now I'm upset, I'm going to move on, right? But what if, what if, just the wrong time? Like, what if it's just the wrong time, and it's still actually a great idea, and you should find the right time to come back to it? And in this case... Uh, my wife uh, is a novelist, and and she has published uh, two prior novels. And so when she pub- when she sold her most recent novel prior to this one, she asked me what I thought she should do next. This was like four or something years ago, and I said, "Why don't you write my novel? Because I'm never <laughs> going to write this thing." And she said, "Well, let's do it together." And so that kicked off a three-something-year project in which we wrote this thing together, and then we sold it, and then it became Mr. Nice Guy, and it came out on October 16th. So it's like pretty new. And um, and it's been it's been great. It's been super, super fun. I am so thrilled to have put this crazy idea into the world. Like it's a romantic comedy, I should be clear. It's not like a it's not like a like a sex romance novel, right? It's like a romantic comedy. This is the premise and they're they're they work in magazines and uh and it's really about these people navigating um the 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 kind of uh ridiculous and ego-filled uh, world of New York media and kind of trying to balance a personal life and ambition. And, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun and it, and it draws a lot from my, my wife and I's own experience working in New York media. And people often ask why I did this. And this I think goes to your framing of it as a jump. Um, it really goes back to my thinking, work your next job. Like this was not something anybody ever asked me to do. I don't, appear to have any reason to have learned how to do fiction. But I think that I should know how to do this because it's a kind of storytelling and maybe there are other opportunities that will come from it. And I won't know those opportunities until I do this. So I might as well. And also it taught me a lot about marketing because then I had a product to market. And so I I got to spend like a year prepping to sell a book. And now that we sold the TV option, which is awesome, which means there's, you know, it's like sort of on its way to maybe being a TV show. We'll see if that actually happens, but the first step has been taken. And, uh, and so I don't know, maybe it'll be an entry into TV. I don't know what it'll be, but all I know is that I want to know what's on the other end of this. And there's only one way to do that, which is to spend three, in this case, spend three years writing a novel with your wife. And and I was very happy to do that. Oh, I love that. It is it is definitely worth checking out. It is what Kevin Kwan, for those who don't know, the author of Crazy Rich Asians says, quote, in all caps, I could not put this book down. It totally messed up my week. It messed up my deadlines, but I absolutely loved it. And it just, I, it is awesome. Thank you. Yeah, that that you know what fun fact that quote which you're reading you're re- that's right on the cover of the book. Um that quote was just from an email from Ke- Kevin just Kevin just our agent um 
at our suggestion, had sent him uh, like an early version of the book. We don't know Kevin. We have no connection to Kevin, but we just sent it and it, it ended up on God knows what insane pile of books he gets. And for some reason or another, he pulled it off the the shelf like a year later, like a full year That's after amazing. we sent it. That's amazing. Um, yeah. And we just got an email from him out of the blue one day being like, well, that, like it was, it was literally that it was, and it was longer and it was very, very nice. And, um, and so, you know, once we like picked ourselves off of the floor, um, having read this book, I mean, having read this email from Kevin Kwan, we, um, we thanked him profusely. And we also asked if we could take part of his email and just put it on the cover of our book, which he was very happy for us to do. And, um, and he's been, he's been like amazingly supportive. I, I, I've emailed him with him many, many times since. And he's, um, you know, I told him recently about the TV option. He was like, if you want, if you ever want to like talk through things about this crazy Hollywood world, like, let me know. Like, he's just so, so nice. And, um, and, and, you know, we didn't, all we did was write a book that he liked, it, it, which, which again, like to go to how you never know how these things are going to pay off. Maybe, I don't know, possibly, probably not, but like anything is possible, right? Like maybe in 10 years, Kevin Kwan and my wife and I are working on some amazing project together. And it happened because we wrote Mr. Night. Like, well, you just don't know what's going to happen, but you know that, you know that when you do new things, you just set yourself down paths that you could not foresee. It goes to my favorite, all of the, what you just said goes to my, one of my favorite quotes of all time. And I'm going to mess up who it's attributed to, but it's very simple. It's if you do interesting things, interesting things will happen to you. And that's true. You are doing interesting things. And whether it's Kevin Kwan or a, a, a customer to Barnes and Noble who sees this and relates and tells their friend whose cousin's brother knows someone who you should talk to, like you're putting something out in the world and you know, it goes right back to the earlier conversation around not knowing exactly where it's going to go. Like when I started collecting stories for when to jump, it was because I needed to fulfill my friend's legacy who I had promised I'd write a book, but you know, sadly his, you know, his life was cut short and, and my, my feeling was I needed to honor and I need to get it out. And when I was told it wouldn't be a book, I was like, fine, it'll be a blog. And maybe then it'll be a, a book later. And, you know, when the right kind of lightning can strike, you look like you were preparing all along for it all to work out nice and easily. But in fact, it's just the right person, whether it's a Kevin or in my case, it was Ariana Huffington who said, hey, this sounds pretty interesting. We should work together. Well, none of that would have happened if I didn't have three years of random, you know, my version of your book manuscript of three years that came from an idea similar to yours that came a long time before that, that I felt like if nothing else, it deserved a $9 a month web domain to just sit as a blog. And because the right person right. saw it, it became something different. But if it wasn't her, I was convinced someone else would see it. And it's just like, you know, with, with what you just said, if it's not Kevin, it'll be someone else that, that, that makes something happen. Or, or if nothing else, you'll feel like when you look back that you got to see something through. And that's a pretty damn good feeling. That is true. That is value all by itself. Oh, amazing. Listen, I don't, want to take up your time. I also don't want to jinx us, but we have not heard a siren in 40 something minutes. Oh, <laughs> that's so that, that is just, um, I guess because they weren't loud enough. No, that we, I we had about three of them, but I'm glad the microphone didn't pick oh, it up. Oh, so. there you go. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so sometimes it's funny. So sometimes you get the light ones and sometimes I, I think it's like, I think it depends on traffic. Like sometimes like a really loud one will come and then just get like jammed at 35th street and seventh Ave and it'll just go on forever. Uh, so we, we've had that. So no, um, the, the rest assured, uh, there was chaos in Midtown New York while we were talking, but it just didn't reach your ears. That is uh, that is good to hear. And and I want to leave with one question, Jason. You do sit at a, an amazing perch, the intersection of so many different ideas and people and stories and whatnot. And 
I want, is there one thing you could pull out and tell folks who are thinking of their own jump, you know, whether it's an entrepreneurship or elsewhere that you just, you feel like you've heard a lot of that might not get as much visibility, but people should know. Hmm. Um, it's a really, that's a really good question. I, so I, I will, um, I've already referenced Reed Hoffman once uh, in this podcast, but I'm going to do it a second time because his, he has this phrase that is one of my favorites. And I think that it's something that everybody, regardless of whether you think of yourself as an entrepreneur or whatever you think of yourself as you should do. Reed Hoffman says that everybody should live, I mean, he's talking about entrepreneurs, but I'm just going to say everybody should live in what he calls, quote unquote, permanent beta. And by permanent beta, he means that you are never a finished product, right? You know, you think of like a product in beta, but the product should always be in beta. You, the product should always be in beta. You should always be refining. You should never be fully defined. You should always be accepting that you are not a finished version of yourself and that you need to be constantly evolving in order to, in order to, to dot, 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 right? Like in order to stay ahead, in order to stay relevant, in order to pursue your path, like the world around you is going to change and you cannot stand still. If you do stand still, the only thing that happens is that you don't move and everyone else moves forward. So permanent beta is one of my favorite phrases. I, I, um, it showed up in a story that we wrote about him a year and a half ago or something like that. And, uh, as soon as I was, I was reading the draft and I saw that phrase and I immediately, grabbed like a, I grabbed like a, like a sticky note and I wrote permanent beta and I stuck it on my wall and it's been there ever since. So, um, I, I would, I would encourage everyone to do the same. Amazing. Permanent beta. We will leave with that insight. Jason Pfeiffer, where can people find you and the book and all that good stuff? Yeah. Um, so the book again is called Mr. Nice Guy. Uh, I would love for you to pick it up. You can find it, you know, wherever you find books. Um, I mean, Amazon, of course, uh, it's also, uh, it's also, there's also the audiobook on Amazon. I mean, audible and, uh, Kindle and whatever else. Uh, and then I would just, I would encourage people to go to my website, which is jasonpfeiffer.com, J A S O N F E I F E R.com, where you can find links to all my other stuff, uh, which, uh, um, which, uh, if I just try to promote it all, it's going to sound obnoxious and long, but basically I have these two podcasts called problem solvers, which is about, uh, 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 every week is about an entrepreneur solving an unexpected problem in their business and pessimist archive, which is a history of unfounded fears of innovation, as well as you can sign up for my newsletter, the five for five, which is, uh, the five pieces of inspirational insight that you need every month. And, um, uh, various other things you can find me on social at, at Hey Pfeiffer. But again, all that stuff is at jasonpfeiffer.com. Amazing. Jason, thank you so much for joining me today, talking jumps of all kinds here on the When to Jump podcast. Hey, thank you. This was a lot of fun. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jason Pfeiffer. For more on Jason, you can check him out, jasonpfeiffer.com. That's Jason, F-E-I-F-E-R.com. He's the author of Mr. Nice Guy. As mentioned, you can follow him on Twitter at HeyPfeiffer. That'll do it for the When to Jump podcast. For more on Jason Pfeiffer, his website, as mentioned, jasonpfeiffer, F-E-I-F-E-R.com. His book is called Mr. Nice Guy. You can get it where books are sold. And you know where to find us, at When to Jump across social media, whentojump.com. Share with us your jumps. A shout out to a note we got from Mary, Mariam, actually, sorry, Mariam, if we can edit that out. Shout out to Mariam in Chicago, who says, love your podcast, One note, sometimes the jump is in fact a pause, and it's a great article from the New York Times that she sent us called What Am I 
if not employed. And it's about someone who worked nonstop since they were a teenager. Now at 50, the person says, I'm hitting pause. It feels scary, but necessary. Very cool article. Very cool person, Miriam. I know we haven't met in person, but thank you for sharing that with us and reaching out. We love to hear from our listeners, so keep the ideas, the stories coming. You know where to find us, wendajump.com. Submit a message right off the website, and we will uh, definitely get back to you and hopefully share your message just like we did for Miriam. Thanks so much for joining the show. Enjoy the conversation with Jason as we had said... uh, Thanks so much for joining the When to Jump podcast. My name is Mike Lewis, and I will see you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.